Good morning. My name is Rob. Um, I am the grandfather of Noah LeMay Erker, nine months old. Hey, um, <clears throat> I'm going to read out of the scriptures today, but just briefly a brief testimony. Last day of uh, 2023, and when I was talking with this, the Lord this morning, I thought about that scripture in Psalm 119, and it says, for you are good and what you do is good. That's in 119.68. In 119.67, it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I love your word. And as I was reflecting this morning about 2023, this has been a year of abundance for me in the sense that my health has been restored, some relationships have been restored. I just found out yesterday that it was the best year we've ever had at the small business that I own. And the reason I say all that is because starting in 2013, there was a lot of really, really hard stuff that came to my life. But God was faithful and it was good that, he, that I was afflicted because then I loved his word more. And he is good, I'm telling you, some of you all are in the trough right now, and some of us are on the, you know, the ebbs and flows of life. I'm flowing right now, but I've been in the ebbs, just like some of you are right now. But know this, that God is good, and he's always good, and what he's doing in you is good. And it's good that you're afflicted, because now you'll love his word. All right. And uh, with that, we'll dismiss, and uh, have a great 2024. <laughs> um, Jeremiah 24, 1 through 10. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jehoaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, and the metalworkers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from the place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in the land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the nations of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they will be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rob, for reading that. And if you want to stay up here, Rob, you can just lead us out, man. <laughs> well, good morning. Merry Christmas again. I hope that, that y'all had a good Christmas season. I know that um, we're still kind of in that season a little bit, and so the holiday season. And so what, what do we celebrate tonight? What is tonight? This is the audience participation part. New Year's Eve, right? So tomorrow is New Year's, and so what do a lot of people do on New Year's? What do they do after the New Year to start the year off? What do you all do? Uh, party. I hear that, yeah. What else? Resolutions, right? Has anybody ever made a resolution that you, like, immediately regretted upon doing that? So... Uh, I had a resolution. I didn't have a resolution. Let me correct that. My wife had a resolution. This wasn't really a New Year's resolution. This was more like a newlyweds resolution. We were young and dumb and in love. And so she had this resolution, like, we're newly married. We're going to stay healthy. We're going to be fit. And so she comes home one day. And she's like, hey, let's go running together so that we can stay healthy. And she's like, you ran track in high school. I ran cross country. This should be easy. And she's like, this is going to be three miles. It'll be fine. And I ran track because I hated long distance. She is a glutton for punishment. That's why she ran cross country. But she's like, this is going to be three miles. She tells me what this route is. She said, I found it on the way home, and I mapped it. And so we're living in Louisville, Kentucky. We're 
living where I grew up, and I'm like, I've lived there my whole life, and I'm like, that doesn't sound like three miles. She's like, trust me, it is. I mapped it with the car. I'm like, okay. So we take off, we're running, and we get about a mile down the road, mile and a half, and I'm still wanting to like turn back because I'm like, hey, that's the way home. She's like, no, no, no. It's just a little, little while further. I'm like, are you sure? She's like, yeah. So we run more, like half an hour. She's taken me to places I've never been. We stopped and watched part of a peewee football game because I didn't even know that there's a football field here. And I'm like, when are we going home? Like, we are so far away from home, I don't even know where I am. So we are finally make our way back, and we get to the library that's kind of on the edge of where we live. It's about a mile and a half from where we live. But this library is on top of this really steep high hill. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to run up this windy road. It's narrow. It's not any fun to drive, much less to try to run up it. That's what I thought. She, she had other ideas. She said, no, we're going to go straight up the hill. So we climb over a guardrail, and we go straight up the hill, like hand over hand climbing. And so we finally, she, she just told my kids, she said, this story is true. Um, <laughs> We finally get home, and I'm exhausted, and so the next day at work, I Googled, because this is before smartphones, we didn't have internet at the house. I get, I get to work, and I Google this route that we went. It was eight miles. <laughs> like, it was really dumb. <laughs> and, and I can tell you, like, I hate Brussels sprouts. I really hate Brussels sprouts. I've eaten more Brussels sprouts than I have gone running with her since that time. And I can count the number of times I've had Brussels sprouts on one finger, since that time. That's how much I hate running. That's how much I hated that resolution. But we make resolutions at New Year's, right? And so why do we make resolutions? We do that because they remind us of what's important. They give us something to work towards. They give our efforts purpose. And so that's why we make resolutions. And so here at the church, we don't necessarily do resolutions church-wide. But for us, it is good to remember and to be reminded of who we are. It's good to be reminded of our purpose here as a church because it helps focus our efforts as we grow and as we minister to those around us. And so we have a mission here at The Journey. It's three parts. Do you all know what that mission is? You can say it out. Say it out loud. It's on the screen, so it's really simple. Right? Love God, connect people, and transform the world. And so when we talk about loving God, we're talking about how we grow spiritually, and that's primarily individually focused. When we talk about connecting people, that's how we grow together, collectively, corporately as a church. And then as we transform the world, when we talk about that, that's how we minister to those around us. And so at the heart of this, we always want to remember that the gospel is at the core that the gospel is fulfilled in us as Christ's body. And so we always want to ask the question, how has God uniquely gifted each one of us and called us as individuals and as a church to the purpose of the gospel? And so at the heart of this mission, everything that you see up on that screen, at the heart of that is what we would call a pursuit of holiness, that our mission before the Lord, it really boils down to a pursuit of holiness on our individual part and on our, on our collective part as a church. And so when I talk about holiness, I'm not talking specifically about the holiness of the Lord, that he is perfect, that he is completely pure, but the other definition of holiness is set apart, that we are set apart for God's exclusive use, that he has a specific purpose for us, both as individuals and as a church. And so that we are set apart in order to love God, that we are set apart to connect people, and that we are set apart in order to transform the world. And so today we're going to take a brief pause from our series in John. We'll get back to that next week, and instead we're going to look in Daniel chapter 1. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can look in the book of Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there are some in the seat backs in front of you. And so uh, if you don't have one, we would invite you to take that with you as our gift to you. But if you are in Daniel chapter 1... I will go ahead and read. And so this is what God's word says. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered, ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four use, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are going to reveal to us as we look at Daniel today. We thank you that you have placed us here in this church and in this community. And we ask that you remind us of the beauty of your gospel, that you have set us apart for your purpose. We ask that you would soften our hearts today, that we would examine ourselves both individually and collectively so that we may fulfill the purpose you have for us. Lord, you are the only true God and there is no one like you. So we give you all the praise today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we start, I want to provide just a little bit of context. So just a minute ago, Rob read from Jeremiah chapter 24, and so Jeremiah was a contemporary at this time with Daniel. And so Jeremiah is specifically in that passage. He is writing to those uh, people who are exiled off to Babylon. And so he is writing to people like Daniel. And so if you think back to what Rob read, uh, we know that exile, it's not a good uh, circumstance. No one wants to be taken from their land and moved against their will to another land. You, you, lose, your law, you lose your sense of identity. You lose your sense of normal. You're forced to assimilate into a new culture. But do you remember what God told Jeremiah to tell the exiles. He said, hey, those guys who have been carried off, God promises to look after those guys, that he hasn't forgotten them, that he is with them, and in fact, he will bless them even though they are in a foreign land, and that they will have a better outcome than those who remain 
in Israel behind with the other folks. And so that is the backdrop that we find ourselves in Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 1, in those first couple of verses, the first thing we see, the first thing we want to realize is we see God's sovereignty, that God is in, in control of every bit of what we've just read. In, in those first couple of verses, it says that God gave the king of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, that God allowed Judah, he allowed his chosen people, his chosen kingdom to be conquered and defeated for Jerusalem to be captured. And so even though it was Nebuchadnezzar's army that surrounded and captured the city, that doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was the one ultimately in control. But this was a fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, because if you remember, right before the children of Israel entered the Promised Land at the end of Deuteronomy, God promises and tells them that, hey, if you don't follow me, if you are disobedient to everything that I have commanded, you're going to have these foreign armies come in and wipe you out and carry you off to captivity. So God warns the children of Israel centuries before this. And so it's come to pass that God has allowed this to happen He's not abandoned control over this situation. This is not an accident. He doesn't have to come up with a plan B because Nebuchadnezzar showed up at the steps of Jerusalem. And so we want to remember, over everything, God is sovereign. And so let us never forget that, that he has purpose even in the midst of a dark and trying time. And so we meet Daniel and his friends, and it says that they are youths. And so scholars say that they are probably between the ages of 10 and 16 years old. So just think about that. You're carried off. You're basically a teenager. You're carried off to a foreign land. They are from the tribe of Judah. They're from the royal tribe of King David. And so Jewish tradition holds that these guys were probably descendants of King Hezekiah, one of the last good kings of Judah. And so they are brought to Babylon, we see that these guys are the best of the best, that they are the cream of the crop. They're described as having no defect, that they are good-looking, they have intelligence, they are competent to serve. And so if you think of a modern example, like who would this look like, you can just ask my grandmother. This is how my grandmother describes me. Um, so she's 90 years old, and she's still got her wits about her, so I choose to trust that she knows what she's talking about. So... They are the best of the best, and so because of that, they are given a task. They are told that they are going to learn for three years, have three years of intensive preparation and education. They are going to learn all the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And so King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make these guys, these Jewish guys, he wanted to make Babylonians out of them. And so he wanted to reorient their allegiance and their worship. And so look at how Rodney Stortz describes this. He says, The Babylonians' literature promoted their worldview, their view of man, their view of God, their view of sin, and their view of redemption, which were all directly opposed to everything these young teens had been taught and believed while in Israel. So Daniel had a challenge in front of him. He's being forced to learn all of this stuff, and in order to do that, he has to hold fast to the Lord, right? He's got to hold fast in a new place, surrounded by new people, surrounded by a new language, a new diet, a new everything. And so look with me again at verses 8 through 14. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer from whom the commander of the officials had appointed over them, Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. So we see that Daniel resolved himself, that he made up his mind. And so when we talk about resolve, when we talk about making up his mind, that's a very, very strong word. It's an active word. It's not a passive word. So Daniel 
as he made up his mind, he's immovable, he's unchanging, he's uncompromising. And so we want to note that this is not just a one-time action. That Daniel didn't just make this decision here in that moment. He didn't just make it there on the spot. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to make this decision and I'm really going to hope that it sticks. But this resolve, Daniel had built up over a period of time. And so this suggests that he had a dependence on the Lord that had been cultivated from a very early age. He had actively been building this. And so we want to remember that Daniel was just a teenager. And so look what Rodney Stortz brings out about Daniel's life prior to coming to Babylon. And so he says, If Daniel was 16 years old in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, which is 606 B.C., we know that, that means that he was born in 622 B.C., Do you know what incredible event took place that year? Josiah, who became the king of Israel when he was eight years old, opened the doors of the temple of the Lord that had been sealed shut by his grandfather Manasseh. Josiah did that when he was 18 years old. Inside the temple, the priests rediscovered the word of God that had been lost. The priests began to teach the teach the people God's word, and a great revival began in Israel. Daniel grew up in a living, vibrant church devoted to the word of God, a church that did not compromise the teaching of Scripture. And so with that as a backdrop, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And so he, de- he resolved to not defile himself only on one specific part. It said that he would do this only in regards to the food and drink, And so he offered no opposition to the other parts of his indoctrination. He didn't push back on any of the education, any of the language, any of the other aspects of cultural immersion, but he held firm on food and drink. And so there's a lot of debate about why Daniel specifically singled out food and drink. Those other aspects helped him uh, operate in the culture and society, but why did he stop? just with food and drink. And so some of the things that that people have thrown out, they think that somehow this food was religiously defiled, therefore he couldn't eat it, that maybe the food had been offered to an idol of Babylon first and then brought in. That was a common practice. Some scholars think, uh, we see in in Daniel chapter 1, that Nebuchadnezzar stole some of the utensils from the temple of God and that he brought them to Babylon and used them in the service of his God. And so some scholars think that maybe the food was prepared with those utensils and God had some strict rules on who could use those. Um, And then others, they suggest that Daniel just wanted to avoid complete unity and fellowship with the king. And so regardless of what Daniel's actual reasoning is, most scholars kind of settle on this one overarching purpose for Daniel, that he wanted to maintain his devotion to the Lord and demonstrate his complete dependence on the Lord alone. Because if he ate and drank from the king's table, that was showing a dependence on the king and not on the Lord. And so Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And so he did this, but then he also gathered others to him, right? We meet Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're better known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see that Daniel gathered them together because he tells the chief officials, he says, hey, test your servants. He says, let our appearance be judged. And so there's this assumption there in the text that they share the same resolve with Daniel, And they had to, because you don't risk going against the king's command by accident. Even the official was worried about his own head if it didn't turn out right for these teens. And so these guys, they shared his same resolve with Daniel. And we know that they were also from the tribe of Judah, so we can assume that they had a very similar upbringing to Daniel, raised in the same time where they were focused on the word of the Lord. And so we know that they realized that they needed each other. Out of probably hundreds of teens in this program, in this education program, they were the only four that said, hey, we're going to draw the line right here. And so you can imagine that life probably wasn't very easy for them over the course of those 10 days. I would imagine that it would have been really hard for them to stand alone but they realized that they had strength in numbers that they could hold one another up. So let's see verses 15 through 21. 
And so at the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And so Daniel continued, continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Okay, so do you catch what's going on, what's happened? Sometimes it's really easy to skip through these verses, and so I want to draw your attention to verse 15, because something really important happens. So what was Daniel eating? What, what did he eat? He was eating vegetables. And what does verse 15 say? It says that they were, after the 10 days, that they were fatter than all the youth. Do you realize that vegetables make you fat? Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> Just want to throw that out there. We preach expositionally. Uh, we preach it like it lies. And so just want to say, go have a steak for lunch today. Um, but we see God's provision and blessing, right, over Daniel and his friends, that God vindicates them in this matter, that they were healthier than all the other youths in the program. And that led to a change for the entire program. Think about that. The official was worried about his own head, and because of God's blessing, God's provision, it led to a change in the program. We see God's sovereignty at work, that he's going to use Daniel and his friends. We see that God gave them knowledge and wisdom, that the king found them 10 times better than all the other youths in the program. And so that 10 times, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can quantify that they scored 100 and the other guys scored 10. What that means is that God was the one behind their blessing, behind their advancement, that it wasn't some sort of special skill or special ability that these four guys possessed. It was God giving them this. And so we see the result that they entered the king's personal service. They personally consulted the king. Imagine a teenager being consulted by the king. That's how much God had used them, how much he had blessed them. And so we know that Daniel, he served three different empires over the course of his life. That wasn't a typical practice because whenever a new king or a new empire came in place, they usually ran off all the old people or they killed them, right? But Daniel's faithfulness allowed him to serve three different empires, and they served where God placed them. They faithfully served all of these different kings and officials. They worked for the good of the city. They worked for the good of the kingdom while remaining faithful to the Lord. They realized that they were in the world, but they were not of the world, and that their faith compelled them to service rather than to withdraw from the culture that they were in. And so before we go any further, I just want to offer a quick disclaimer that we can never assume that just because we're faithful that God is going to vindicate us or bless us in this life. I want to throw that out there. There's a lot of people that will tell you, if you're faithful, God will bless you. He'll give you great health. That's not always the case, that we have brothers and sisters all around this world who are faithful and they pay with their life. And so I always want to throw that out there. That's a whole other sermon. Maybe we'll get to some other time. So as we look at Daniel chapter 1, we want to see how this applies to us at the journey, how this applies to us as a church. And so like we talked about earlier, that our mission is intertwined with a pursuit of holiness, that that is inseparable. And that is what we've witnessed here briefly in Daniel chapter 1. And so here at The Journey, we believe that we are called to love God. And so as we talk about loving God, we're talking about our personal holiness our ongoing sanctification, the work that the Holy Spirit does in us to make us more like Jesus. And so Daniel's life, it reminds us of this resolve, that he demonstrated a complete dependence on the Lord, that he had an intimate knowledge of Scripture, 
And even though it's clear, it's not clear why Daniel chose to draw the line on food and drink, it is clear that he had a clear understanding of what God was asking him to do, that he had a clear understanding of God's law. And so we want to remember that he was a teenager when all of this started, that he developed this resolve early. It took time. It grew up, he grew up in an environment where the Lord was celebrated, where his word was revered. And so what does that say about us? So look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter writes, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. So Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Resolve Christ as Lord in your hearts. Devote yourself. Devote Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so that's the task that's before us with that, that what is our resolve? Are we devoted to the Lord. A couple of years ago, uh, I took some students to camp at Snowbird with a, with a previous church, and there was a staffer there, and he was talking to our students. And he said that when he was at uh, college, at the university, he took a philosophy class. And on the first day of class, the teacher um, gave everybody a sheet of paper, and he said, on one side of the paper, I want you to answer this question. What is the biggest goal of your life? What is your greatest desire? And so write that down on that side of the paper. So after everybody had written that down, he told them to flip the paper over, and he said, okay, give me your daily routine. What does your day look like? What does your week look like? And so this guy, as he's writing, he knew that he wanted to go into ministry, so he's like, man, I want to I go into ministry. I want to serve a church. I want to share the gospel. I want people to come to know the Lord. That's what my biggest goal is. And so on the second side, he wrote his schedule. He said, well, I like to sleep in, um, I like to eat, I like to hang out with my friends, I like to play video games, uh, I do a little bit of homework, and that's what I'm doing. And so after everybody had written this stuff down, the professor tells them, hey, the, the answer to that first question is really what's written on that back side of the paper. That answer to the second question is the answer really to that first question. And so if we truly want to be dependent upon the Lord, what does our life reveal? Are we devoted personally to his word? Are we growing in our knowledge of the Lord? Are we intimate with the Lord in prayer? I love how Rob talked about how he was talking to God this morning, right? Are we like that? Are we intimate with the Lord in prayer? And so I want to be clear that it's not about the doing, right? We don't read and we don't pray so that we become more holy or that we become more acceptable to God. This is not a formula. It's not a prescription of how we do better in life. But we do it because God has called us and he has saved us and he has set us apart by his grace that we are transformed as we encounter him in his word, that it's not in the doing, or it is in the doing, but not by the doing, right? Let me say that again. It's in the doing, it's not by the doing, that we will never know what God's word says if we're never in position to read it. If you never read it, you're never going to know what the word says. And so we know the reverse is true, though, that what we spend time on that's what we, we become good at. That's where we become experts, right? If we invest our time in that. If you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, he's written several books, but in one book he talks about the 10,000-hour rule, that it takes 10,000 hours of practice in order to master a particular task. And he gives all these examples. He gives one example of the Beatles, that before they really became the Beatles, they spent seven years in Amsterdam playing in clubs every single night hour after hour, day after day, year after year. And that was instrumental in their success. They put in the 10,000 hours in order to become the Beatles, arguably one of the greatest bands we've ever seen. And so for us, have we spent 10,000 hours studying God's word? 
Have we spent a thousand hours? Have we spent a hundred hours? Right? Do we invest time in there? How well do we really know Scripture? Are we shaped by Scripture? Is our worldview shaped by Scripture? Or is our worldview shaped by some other authority? Do we have opinions that we try to wrap some Scripture about? Try to wrap Scripture around? Or are we like Daniel who are moved and shaped by what God's Word says? Are we rooted? Are we dependent on Scripture? And I know, I know, I know, like this is hard work. Like it's hard work to dive in here. Sometimes it's not easy to understand. But it does take time and effort. It doesn't happen overnight. We're not called to be experts tomorrow. It's a daily process. Remember that Daniel was a teenager, that he was a young guy when he started. And so if he is a young guy and he can do it, guess what? Every single one of us can do it as well, right? It's never too late for us to dive in, to have a real dependence upon God's word, a real dependence upon the Lord in prayer. So that's loving God. So what about connecting people? How do we see that in Daniel? And so when we talk about connecting people, we're talking about our, our collective holiness, holding the rope for each other, encouraging one another, spurring one another on towards godliness, This is a realization that we can't live this life of faith. We can't live it alone. We can't live it in isolation. And so in Daniel chapter 1, we saw saw a shared resolve amongst Daniel and his friends that they pulled together, they realized that they needed each other, that they couldn't do it on their own. And so here at The Journey, we believe that as we connect people, that this is primarily achieved through community groups, right? That's why we believe so strongly in community groups. And so there's two main goals that we have in community group. And so the first one that we talk about is that we want to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so a lot of times we will use this verse to tell people about the importance of coming to church, the importance of meeting together in an environment like this, and that is very much true. That's an application here. But it's also true that we want to meet together as smaller groups because if you think about it, I'm up here, hopefully I'm encouraging you, But really, that's just a one-way street, right? There's not a whole lot of cross-interaction here. And so the writer of Hebrews says that we don't want to neglect meeting together. We want to get together with people so that we can know people and be known by other people. That that encouragement, that spurring each other on, that happens more effectively in a smaller group because people know exactly what you need right? I can do it up here, but it's not going to be as effective than, than if you're walking with people, if you're doing life together, if they're walking through the hard situations of life with you. That's where that encouragement comes from. And so first goal, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. The second goal that we see is uh, through scriptures, we want to protect our holiness, and that's done through community groups. And so look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that being sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we are called to protect each other's holiness, that part of our role as believers, as a church, is that we want to keep sin from destroying each other, that we have a responsibility for other people. It's not just looking out for ourselves, but we're looking out for others. So we're looking out for sin. And so when we find someone that's struggling in sin, What's the goal there that Paul writes? The goal is restoration, that we want to pull somebody out of sin, and we want to restore them. The goal isn't to exclude somebody, to separate them out, or to shame them, 
But we want to bring each other back to right fellowship with the Lord and right fellowship with other believers. And Paul says that we do this gently. And so that picture of gentleness there, that's a picture of resetting a broken bone. So if you've ever been to the doctor and had a bone reset, they don't do that haphazardly. They try to do that with all gentleness. And so that's what we are called to do as we restore one another. We're called to bear the burdens of others. The picture there is picking up uh, someone's backpack as you're going on a trip, a heavy backpack. And so I don't know if you're like me. I've been carrying up totes of Christmas decorations from the basement upstairs and back the last couple days. And some of those get pretty heavy. So imagine having to carry that tote a mile down the road. But that's the picture that Paul is giving us, to pick up that tote and walk down a mile down the road with somebody. That we bear one another's burdens. You think if you're carrying that down the road, that, that's not a quick thing. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. It takes emotional investment. Bearing somebody's burdens, that's not a quick fix. And so we have to walk with each other because we need each other. And this requires relationship with someone, right? We have to be in relationship. You just don't pick up some rando's backpack and walk with them, right? And so for us, this should point us to a culture of holiness, that we want to remember Daniel's upbringing, that he was raised in a time where the whole nation was devoted to the Lord, where it was a time of national repentance because they had rediscovered the law. So Daniel was immersed in that sort of environment. And that's the environment that we want to create here, not only for us, we want to create that for our children and journey kids. We want to create that for our students and journey students because where we learn to love God and grow daily is with each other. When we're connected to each other, we can spur one another on. We can encourage one another. We can look out for one another so that we don't fall into sin. And by God's grace, we can restore one another when we do fall into sin. And so I, I want to address an elephant in the room because I know for some people, like the idea of community groups is a little daunting. It makes us uncomfortable because I think just kind of in our national psyche, we kind of think that community groups is a place where we come and we just spill our guts. We get there, and the first thing we do is we spill our guts. We tell the first time we ever sinned, the last sin we committed, and every sin in between. Um, that's not how community groups work. Those of you that are in it, is that how they work? Don't. The whole purpose of community groups is to build relationships. That we're in there, we know each other. And the whole purpose is we want to know each other so well that when we do see smoke in someone's life, that we can pull them out before fire engulfs the whole house, right? That takes time. That takes investment. And so we want to be intentional about that. Now, will there be times where we ask some probing questions of like, hey, are you involved in sin? Yeah, there's times where that's appropriate. But we do that because we know the person, we're not just walking up to a brand new person and saying, hey, what are you struggling with? We want to know each other. We want to hold each other up because we know that whenever life does hit the fan, right, we always turn to somebody. We always share that with somebody. So isn't it better to share that with people who you know is going to pray for you, people that are going to hold you up, people that are going to offer you support, rather than maybe a coworker who's, just all sorts of messed up. Wouldn't you rather go to someone that you know has your back? So that's why we believe so strongly in community groups. And so the last part of our mission, the last part that we see Daniel involved in in chapter one, we talk about transforming the world. This is our missional holiness. This is being set apart for God's use, realizing that our life is not our own, that God has purpose for us both as individuals and collectively as a church, that he has uniquely placed us in our social circles, in our family circles, that it's not by accident that that's happened, that he's placed us there on purpose. And so we saw that Daniel, he immersed himself into the culture. He didn't necessarily adopt the culture, but he immersed himself in that. He didn't withdraw 
But in his faithfulness, we saw that Daniel worked for the good of the kingdom without compromising his faith, that his faithfulness allowed him to build relationships. Think of the relationship he had with the commander of the officials. That guy was afraid that his life would be forfeited if Daniel failed in this. All right, he built a relationship and God gave him favor and compassion with the official. But even later on in the book of Daniel, we see that he builds a relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. We read earlier uh, at the start of the service that Nebuchadnezzar even turned his life to the Lord as a result of Daniel's faithfulness, right? So Daniel didn't waste his opportunities. He didn't waste his opportunities. He took every advantage of these relationships. And so as we think about us, we want to understand the culture that's around us. We want to understand the culture. We want to immerse ourselves into that culture without compromising our own faithfulness. And so we want to realize that even our American culture, even our culture here in Southern Illinois, that wants to pull us out of God's kingdom. So we want to realize that, but we want to immerse ourselves without compromising our faithfulness, realizing that God has given us everything that we need in order to impact those around us. That in our jobs, we want to work for the benefit of those around us, and we want to build relationships with those who cross our paths. Right? Everybody, we have people that cross our paths every day, whether that's family, neighbors, think about your coworkers, your supervisors, your customers, people you're around in the gym, on the golf course, in the coffee shop. Every single one of us are around people. And so we want to build relationships with those people. We want to be intentional with those relationships because we know that there are only two types of people in this world, right? People that know the Lord and people that don't. And so we want to build relationships because this is urgent. We want to be intentional and not waste opportunities. I'm reminded of our friends over in Central Asia and so I got a text from him on Christmas Day. They had a meeting, and they had a guy that professed Christ, a local believer, professed Christ, wants to be baptized. And he met this guy while we were on our trip over there. And so it was amazing to watch our friend work as he's constantly building relationships with people. He's dropping gospel hooks to see if anything bites. And we saw him do this probably 100 times while we were there. And so 99 times, he got no bite, but he got one bite from this guy. And praise God, this one guy came to know the Lord, and as of a week ago, gave his life to the Lord, right? Our friend doesn't waste the opportunity to share the gospel, right? Doesn't waste, waste his time. He's intentional. He's always looking to meet those spiritual needs. And so we want to act with that same sense of urgency as we interact with the people around us. And so that's for us individually, but us collectively as a church, right? we want to take the same intentionality with our own ministries. We talk here about redemptive relationships, that our ministries are built around these redemptive relationships, that we are intentional about forming long-lasting relationships, that we don't just want to meet some simple need and then send somebody out on their way, right? We want to build relationships with the purpose of sharing the gospel and inviting them into our community here, that we want to invest in people, we want to live life with people. And so we talk about some of our ministries, like the Restore Network or Embrace Grace, and think about what those ministries do. They put us in proximity with people who have real needs. They put us in, in, in proximity to people that we would probably never be exposed to in any other context. But we get to get into the messy of their, of their lives. We're not just meeting their needs or giving stuff away. And even like in the, 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 the cause for Embrace Grace, it's even more than just getting a mama to choose life over an abortion, right? We want to walk through life with these people, we want to know them. We want to bear their burdens. We don't want it to just be a one-time action that we do for these people. 
But God is calling each of us to work for the good of those around us. And that's why we believe so strongly in redemptive relationships. And that's why we do ministry the way that we do here. And so as we close today, we want to remember that God has called us, that he has set us apart to love him, to connect with others, and to transform the world. And that that has implications both for you and me personally, but also as a body. And so we know that we won't ever do this quite perfectly. We know that people, uh, we mess up, we'll hurt people. But we know that God has called us to this purpose, right? That he has called us, he has invited us in. He's invited us to be part of his sovereign plan. And so just like we saw with Daniel today, we want to remember what God has called us to, and we want to put our resolve down. We want to make a resolution Right to be set apart so that we can share the gospel in this community with those around us. Right, So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, you are good and your faithfulness is everlasting. So we thank you for faithful servants like Daniel who you use to teach us about how we should interact with the world around us. We thank you that you want to use us, broken, dirty vessels, that you want to use us in order to build your kingdom by your grace. So we ask that you help us today to put our dependence solely upon you, that we would grow deeper in our love for you. We ask that you would help us as we build relationships with others, that we would encourage one another that we would look out for each other. We ask that you help us to be intentional with our relationships so that we would not miss opportunities for the gospel. God, we know, we know that you've called us to this, that you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of you. So we thank you for the grace that you give us to follow you. We ask that you have your way in this place. So as we have a time of response, I think there's a lot of application for us. I don't know what the Lord is calling you to, but I want you to know that the altar is open. You can come up here. You can pray. I'll be down here if you want me to pray with you. You can grab an elder. You can grab whoever. We would love to pray with you. But most of all, like all of this starts with the knowledge of the Lord. So if you don't know Jesus, that would be the greatest thing that we could share with you today. So as the band plays as they sing, you respond as the Lord leads.